VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is the briefing room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Matt Donato, co-creator and editor of Certified Forgotten. You've also seen and read his work in places such as Bloody Disgusting, Vangoria, Ebert Voices, Slash Film, and What to Watch. Just everywhere. Everywhere, whatever. Welcome to the show! Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate the invitation back now that we have had both y'all on Certified Forgotten. Hell yeah. And now we've had both of y'all on uh, on Scarred for Life. It's one big happy the family. The podcast community is always giving. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so let's take it back to the, to the start. How did you get introduced to horror? So my introduction to horror came a lot later than most people. Mm -hmm. And I raised that because in listening to podcasts and listening to other horror critics talk about how they got started, I realized how unique my path is in a way. And that is basically the sense that I avoided horror for a very long time in my life. I avoided horror growing up until basically high school and like to the tail end of high school. And that was because I grew up in a house where my father was a detective. My mom was a teacher. Uh, they were both, you know, pillars in the community in a way. And it was very much an environment that bred following the rules and doing mm. things the right way. And horror was just something neither of them had an interest in. So immediately it was just this weird genre that was not to be understood. So that rubbed off on me, 100%. It, it completely rubbed off on me because I'm around my parents all the time. I d I'm an only child as well, so no siblings to sneak movies after midnight. <laughs> I was at the mercy of a PG-13 movie requires to be 13, an R-rated movie requires to be 17. <laughs> we will yeah. not be watching those in my house. That's my mom's rules, obviously. So long story short, that was my upbringing and to the point where I was a very anxious kid. I had a lot of fears and paranoias. Uh, when I was little, my mom told me, and I even remember, I used to have this weird thing in my head that I was always going to throw up. And no matter where I was in public, I would just like be like, mom, am I going to throw up? And like that, that, that was my anxiety to a Aww. point for a very long time in my life. So horror fit the mold of a thing I avoided for a very long time because it would just scare me. And it was just bad for me. Cut forward to high school and. I will tie this into the fact that my girlfriend at the time was like, we're going to break you out of your out of your comfort zone, which was basically a, a giant bubble suit for me. <laughs> that was my comfort zone. So we went to Six Flags in Jersey and I had never been on a roller coaster, too. And that ties into fears as well. I would never do a roller coaster because I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of fast things. Excitement was scary in a way to me. So she forced me on every single roller coaster. I went home extremely happy. I felt adrenaline rush kind of for the first time. Okay. And... That 100% spiked my interest to be like, what else have I been avoiding my entire life and scared of prematurely and in my head without experiencing? And horror was the second thing. So I went right back to the Child's Play movies, which if if they were not covered extensively, I totally understand. Uh, Bride of Chucky would be my actual scarred for life. I had a very bad time with Chucky for a very long time in my life. So I conquered Chucky as my first 
re-entry into the world as someone who wanted to appreciate horror and appreciate these things that, yes, are scary, but also can add such meaning to life. And that is just a very broad way of saying it. And there's a lot deeper conversation there, but there's a lot to talk about in horror. There's a lot to talk about what horror can help people who are anxious, you know, help them kind of come out of their shell. So that was high school for me. That was the end of high school. I finally found friends who wanted to show me horror movies. And the rest is this fucking mess in front of you. <laughs> so, so you hadn't like really got like, got into horror until the end of high school. You said, like you said, but had you ever seen a horror movie or like caught one? Like, was there a first horror movie that stands out besides the Child's Play films? So, not really. Okay, I I will honestly say, uh, you know, hearing other people talk, as I said before uh, we started recording, you know, I re- re- listened to Jessica Scott's episode and to hear people like Jessica who watched Poltergeist at such a young age, mm-hmm. I had none of that. Okay. I can remember being at a friend's house and watching, I honestly forget which Freddy movie it was, but I was far too young for that. And I saw a Freddy movie at too young an age. And that was like all of five seconds being like, fuck off. I'm out. Nope. No, no <laughs> shot. Uh, I was at a sleepover once and this goes back to Bride of Chucky and literally had to turn away from the tv because they were watching it and i just pretended i was like doing something else but i just wouldn't watch it because i started like hyperventilating so that was me in horror for a very long time in my life and that is why i so adamantly even do y'all have party cities by you yeah 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 so halloween party city my mom would like go in for halloween decorations i would not walk down the mask aisle because that was too scary for me this is me. I'm like I'm prepping that. everyone as to why I picked Attack of the Killer Tomatoes because you're all probably sitting there going like it's a musical comedy. Yeah, we're gonna get there. I'm so excited. <laughs> so okay, so you, you went to the Child's Play movies at, like when you got into horror. What were these? What were some of the other like first films that you kind of watched to get yourself into the horror genre? So comedy helped me in okay. a lot. The horror comedies became my go-to in the sense that anything that had a fun vibe to it, anything that was a midnighter, and maybe that's why I adore them so much, mm-hmm. I really just latched onto that. And I will say the one movie, and we'll fast forward even to college, I think college is when I became the full horror appreciator I am today. Mm-hmm. And my movie was Wreck, R-E-C, however you want to pronounce it. That was the one movie that Netflix was still giving you DVDs in the mail. Oh my God. They didn't even have streaming. <laughs> and one of the first ones I got, because I had a list of reading Bloody Disgusting every day. You're, you just find out these movies you want to watch that you can't find anywhere. And, yep. You know, Wreck comes on Netflix, and I'm like, well, I wanted to see this so much. I love found footage. I love everything about this. We're going to do this. And that was the first time I watched a horror movie. And it wasn't just entertainment. It wasn't just for the thrill. I sat there and appreciated like the medium itself and appreciated everything about that movie from the camera work to what found footage could do. Like my mind kind of blew up in that moment. So I think Wreck is really the first movie that threw me into the throes of horror and became my go-to for any time someone's like, well, what was the movie that kind of turned turned the edge on that? And I'm like, Wreck is that. But the Child's Play were the ones that were my, like, conquering my fear. Like, this is it. And they are my favorite slasher franchise to date. You have some sick Child's Play shoes from Andrea, Andrew Lucene. They're- from Mr. Andrew Lucene. Oh. Did them up right. My bride of Chucky's. <laughs> I you know what what a great movie though to have like that sort of the synapses start to fire with Rhett because that I mean we we talked about that on the podcast and it's it's such a it's such a fucking intense movie. Oh, it's so good. Uh, I just I I love that because I I you know I I was thinking back to like what was the movie for me that did that and it would have been uh, you know Nightmare on Elm Street was would would have been for me whereas like you start to like see things as like the art behind it and and you see that it's not just like a series of things that happen and I I love that what a what a great turning point well it's interesting because a lot of people's stories start so young Mm -hmm. so they've had time to go through the backlog they've had time to see all the Mm -hmm. the big franchises you know that big brother or sister says listen we're going to start you with the freddy we're going to start you with the jason because you need to know where horror kind of built itself for me coming into it so late i didn't have time to go backwards i'm still not as learned i would say in the true classics i'm still going through hammer horror i'm still going through like the black and white stuff because i just never had that time to do it and when i started to get into horrors when I started to get into writing as well. So I just hit the ground running with New Age Horror and 2010, 2009. Everything since then I've seen. Like, that's the thing. I have done very well with staying up with, like, modern horror, and that is exactly what I've dedicated myself to. And the cracks, you know, stuff falls through every now and then, but I'm able to go through the backlog when I can. It's Mm -hmm. it's a fun thing, but we all do it. We all basically pick projects so we can write about things and – most of that stuff is modern to keep up with SEO, but every once in a while you get that chance to write about something old and you're like, I could finally clean that blind spot up. So that has been 
the biggest challenge for me. I that's why Wreck is my movie. Wreck is my movie because it just happened with me. It happened at the same time. And I just never really had that chance to go backwards first. Mm-hmm. And obviously Child's Play is an outlier there. But, you know, I, I didn't see every Friday the 13th movie until the pandemic when I bought the box set. I saw all the Friday the 13th, not the Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies that way too. I have a very similar story. Like I don't, I just, I got into horror. Like I liked it for a long time, but I didn't really get into it until I was like in high school. And I'm, I have a lot of blind spots and things that fall through the cracks too and it's it's good to remember that and know that that you don't have to know every i feel like sometimes i feel like there's this pressure to have this encyclopedic knowledge of all horror forever and i'm like i've seen nothing when actually you're not a real horror (laughs) fan unless you've seen x movie from like the 70s that no one else has seen i have no time (laughs) yes it's nice to hear so like hear talk about that and be like you it's okay not everyone has like every era of horror memorized and like devoted to their memory because every 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 story is different you know we all find our ways to horror in such different ways and i i am so appreciative the people that did have that upbringing in the movie stores and you like you know going to video rental stores and their parents were okay with that stuff and i unfortunately like i didn't have that upbringing so Mm -hmm. for me i had to find my own way in and it took a lot longer but that doesn't you know make anyone any less of a fan i think yeah the the unfortunate thing with like online toxicity is it becomes a contest it's like you're not a real horror fan i know way more about you i've seen more than you but it's not about what you've seen. It's what you bring and what enthusiasm you have for the genre. And that can't be, that can't be fake. That can't be replicated. So I, I do my best to uh, shoo away those people. Like when I wrote about Friday the 13th or Bloody on the remake, it's like, oh, well, you think the remake's one of the best entries in the franchise. So obviously you're not a fan. And but I'm it like, also well, fuck is. you, number but one, also number two. But also like, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I know. I'm not wrong. <laughs> but that's the thing. Look, I that's know the I'm thing. Correct. You know, we, we fall into that and we fall into the comments online and it, it, it eats away at us and at least me at least i can't i can't shake it off all the time but yeah it is as you said Mary envy like literally it's good to know that other people have that same story because you know the, the pedigree all y'all have and you know to hear that yes you haven't seen everything like it's okay it's it's okay so i i know that you didn't watch horror movies as a kid but i am curious as an adult what draws you now to this genre uh it is number one it's just the feeling that i get from watching a horror movie mm-hmm. i i can't shake off that adrenaline and i still get scared by them that's the fun part like you know it's a good horror movie because i've covered so goddamn many (laughs) that yeah i am desensitized to some things but when something scares me you know that's something special Uh, and that that fun factor of finding that hidden gem that's what brings me back and also again as a child we want to talk about anxiety i was that kid that like laid awake at night for an hour and thought about death because it's like death is scary what is death what happens when i die and I don't do that anymore, thanks to horror. And that's weird to say, but I'm comfortable in the fact that there is finality and that horror has made that normal. So I, I, growing up in a household where my parents, my mom definitely had anxiety. My mom definitely had her own, you know, she, she'll, she'll say it herself. So that's not me like outing anything, but I inherited some of that. So mm-hmm. I inherited it in a way that drove me to horror and that has helped me deal with some of my uh, hangups for a while. Yeah. I always think, and I, I brought this quote up a couple times w- while we're recording, but I always think about uh, Wes Craven where he said that horror is like the boot camp for the psyche. And it's it's true. It helps people that have like anxiety and that kind of thing. It's absolutely, absolutely does. The world is a dark place and uh, horror <laughs> is the only genre that really wants to deal with that. So if anything, it just helps you for reality. Hell yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you said that you still get uh, scared sometimes watching movies as an adult even though you know we're all kind of desensitized what was the last film that truly scared you the last film that truly scared me i i had really visceral reactions to crawl um that one was up there for me the way that the creature effects and the creature scare specifically were worked in absolutely just fierce nerve shredding the first time the the reptile just burst through the stairwell Mm -hmm. i I did not see it coming i jumped into theater so I think Crawl had a really good effect on me. Like, of course, I'm like blanking a little bit, but uh, I- I'm doing the uh, scariest scene ever now with uh, Ariel Fisher on Slash Film. Yeah. And just me going through things, I'm finding so many great scares that I- I'd forgotten about a little bit. But, you know, this week we wrote about the Banshee chapter. And once again, like Banshee chapter is effing horrifying. It blends found footage in a way that is so cool and it's Lovecraftian. So Banshee chapter for me is, uh, I think it was like 2013. So maybe not recent, recent. But that's the stuff that truly scares me. And honestly, found footage. Found footage is the one thing that will continue to scare me. And obviously, I see MV dancing because <laughs> this, this is your genre. It's my I, genre. I, trust me, I've, I've been a found footage fan yeah, since, you're... man, bloody disgusting. 
released. Sorry, not to cut. No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't mean to over. Good. But I was going to say, Blade Disgusting released this thing called Atrocious uh, when they were still, when they started Blade Disgusting and Selects. Uh, so, you know, we're talking like 2012 or something like that. And I realized what indie found footage could do. And it, Paranormal Activity, obviously, that is, the, it is the king for me. It still is effective. It still works. And I will be one of the people who defends that movie to death. Cloverfield, a monster movie that's found footage. It's all about that perspective. So you show me a found footage movie, I'm probably going to throw a scare at you that still is in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's it. We don't have to talk about anything else. It's done. That's the interview. <laughs> we hit on found footage. We're done. We're Podcast done. over. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, take a drink. <laughs> so you talked about like what scared you, but what are, I know you have uh, you have a rep- reputation for liking certain kinds of films um, on film. By all means. But like, what do you really love? Like, what are your favorite horror movies? I know people know you for liking dude bro party slumber dude bro massacre. <laughs> dude bro party massacre three. <laughs> Come on, dude, the best one of the dude bro. <laughs> dude bro slumber uh, yeah, party. I mean- <laughs> <laughs> dude blur- dude bro slumber party massacre 17 yeah that that is my favorite movie <laughs> no that's i mean that's a loaded question because i do gravitate towards comedy uh, as we talked about like horror comedies are my genre found footage is also my genre so i get this weird smattering of favorite films that are, just get stuck in between but if we're really going favorite of all time uh, i can't get away from bride of chucky i can't get away from the return of the living dead fuck yeah um i i, f- I flip-flop on so many others but like I, I don't ironically love Demon Wind. I effing love Demon Wind. So, like, I don't know if it really would be top 10, but it's up there. Uh, in recent memory, Satan Slaves Ooh. made a really mm. hard play to be in, like, my yeah. top, top 10, top 5. And everything else just keeps switching out. But I think the constants that are always there is Return. The constant that's always there is Bride of uh, Chucky. And from there, it becomes a toss-up. But there is so much, so much good horror that I could just cycle through. It's impossible. Yep. So you you said earlier, kind of switching to the kind of creative stuff, you said earlier that you started, you found horror movies about the same time you were writing about movies. How did you decide to write about film? Or was it uh, something you always wanted? accidentally. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I'm a business major. Uh, I went to college <laughs> to get a business degree and business management, and it is a soul-sucking life that I needed something else to balance out with. So I, I'm still a day job person. Uh, like I, Me and Monocle call ourselves day job critics, and as most of us are, I assume. But, yep. you know, balancing that not yeah, exactly. Balancing the nine to five, I needed that something else creative in my life. Uh, my girlfriend in college had these like diaries where she would write about books. And basically there were these diaries that you could be your own book critic, but just like for yourself, mm. you would journal them. And she accidentally got a film one one time. So it was like made out to be a film, like basically like film baby's first film criticism uh, journal. And she's like, do you want it? I had no intention of ever writing. My high school honors English teacher told me I didn't belong in honors and I shouldn't pursue anything in no. writing. Um, and he he was also the film studies teacher, so that was oh. that was one of my first feedback. Have you ever so have you great. ever sent him a link? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I, 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 dude, I don't even know. Dude doesn't even have. He like lived in the Catskills and was just like a hippie poet. Uh, and oh, definitely oh, didn't. Oh, even I, like, I don't give a shit. Okay. Could not even get that. No. <laughs> So, but yeah, so she gave me the diary and I was wow. kind of just like messing around with it going, all right, this is kind of fun. I'm recording what I'm, re- what I'm watching. I'm recording what I'm doing. Maybe this could be a thing. So as anyone who's done what we do, I started a blog. I just started writing about it and getting better and like working on my craft. And after a while I stumbled upon, uh, <laughs> listen, I got my start at, we got this covered. I know it's a dumpster fire now and I don't associate with them, but we all get our start somewhere. And honestly, getting my start there worked out for me tremendously and, I have since moved moved on to way better things, but I went to steal an image from them and saw a write for us section, and I just applied. They accepted me, and I became kind of like their yeah. Oh, straight up, yeah. And I applied. Uh, they they took me in as their critic, and I started doing you know, like I moved to New York, and I started doing press days, uh, and I started doing all the screenings there. So it was really just diving into the deep end and working my ass off to get better and better at this until I was at a point where I actually felt comfortable to do it quote unquote professionally, whatever we want to call it. Uh, and the creativity was everything that I needed. So I threw myself to it. I, I just have latched onto it and it's been so helpful throughout, uh, everything that I do, honestly, because if I was just working my day job, uh, I don't know how things would have gone by now. Yeah. I, I completely relate to that because my, my day job is completely uncreative and, you know, 
pays the bills, does all that kind of stuff. But it's like, I need that creative side. So I completely relate to that 100%. Shout out to that college girlfriend for giving you the job. Yeah. <laughs> on, on a straight up, like, still talk to her. Great. Everything's good. And I say that. I'm like, literally, I don't know if this ever would have happened if I didn't have that weird introduction. Weird. That's amazing, though. I love, I love stories like that, though. You're like, this is a fucking random thing that happened. But here, now I'm a, now I'm a fucking film critic because I'll be like... Maybe just because this person gave me a journal. It's cool. I don't know. It's just cool. Who, I was going to say, who could champion Demon Wind? Like, who would be out here no. championing Demon <laughs> Wind if I didn't get that? Out here championing Demon Wind at every point possible. Exactly. <laughs> this is important. I mean, it's a it's a fine movie. <laughs> just slam my laptop shut. I, the podcast. I still have to see it, but I bought it because of you. Like, I own it. Because of because of you, <laughs> so. just have some drinks, maybe take an edible, it's and just fun. have yourself a night. It's fun. It's so it much really fun. Yeah, is. that sounds great. That sounds like my plan for watching it anyway. So it sounds incredible. Um, but okay, can you tell us a little bit about your site, Certified Forgotten, and podcast? Yeah, we want to hear the real story <laughs> yeah. after talking with Monocle. The re- uh, that's r- that's right. Because Mon- I'm sure you've asked Monocle the same question. Oh yeah, we did. Oh yeah, we exactly. want to hear your okay. story. <laughs> I want to see how wrong it is and just like kind of push it. <laughs> so it was all my idea, obviously. He had no input at all. Uh, no, so I, the story I think that will align on this is Monaco and I have talked about working together on a project for a little bit at that point. We were trying to figure out the right podcast. So the podcast came first. The podcast we were drawn to because we both attended the same little indie horror festival in New York City, and we didn't know about it until we actually talked years later. So we're just talking about some of the films that we saw there and we adored. And I'm sure you guys have the same experience where we're all at these little festivals and we see these beautiful little indies that never get the distribution they deserve, never get the marketing, mm-hmm. never get anything. So no one hears about them. And that was the simple starting point for Certified Forgotten because we're like, okay, we need a podcast idea. We want to work together. What if we find a way to shine a light on these movies that Rotten Tomatoes has forgotten? And by extension, like the horror community in a way. And luckily, we found out that the horror community themselves have not forgotten about these movies, but the mainstream has in a majority, like overwhelmingly. So that was the start for the podcast. And then the website was birthed from the fact that, listen, like we're both fortunate in our situations, me and Monaco, like... We both uh, have the financial stability to sit here and say, okay, let's start a website. Let's start paying writers that we want to see, write pieces that we want to read. And let's try to just spread the wealth a little bit because there is a way to pitch certain sites. There's there's certain pitches that are always going to get accepted. And what we have steered towards is staying in line with our our uh, podcast. Sorry. So the website, we do want to focus on horror films that are generally forgotten from the 2000 plus era. Mm-hmm. So that is what we try to do, but we have opened it up further. Um, you know, Rob Hunter wrote about Mr. Frost, so we're getting into the nineties and things of that nature. But what we've always wanted to do is just make sure that we are finding a way to give younger writers the opportunity to start somewhere, the opportunity to learn how to pitch, maybe learn how to do things for those bigger sites and to just make sure we're giving voices the due credit they deserve if whether or not they're getting published elsewhere like we're not saying we're the only people publishing certain voices we're not saying we're the only people doing what we're doing but we are saying that we are another place that's putting a lot of thought into a site that is trying to come out there and just give people a different kind of criticism a different kind of outlet so that's what we banked on uh that's what we've always going to try to do and you know, things like uh, Ren's piece on Seed of Chucky. That's exactly yeah. what our site is all about. Like, we want to give a story like that the platform and also pay them to do it because that's going to go on a blog somewhere and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we have a way to get that out there and we have a way to put it in front of Don and say, hey, you should give this a read. Like, that's that's what we're going to do. Oh, he, ret- he posted it. It was so exciting. That's awesome. Don, it's a very nice man. He is. Don He's is wonderful. a very nice man. Did that, did that align with what Monogle said? It did. <laughs> it did, actually. It did. Okay. Very, very nice. Right. So what is it like working with Monogle? Give us the tea. <laughs> oh, he's so miserable. Uh. <laughs> SEO this and SEO that. He is, he is legitimately the opposite of me, which 
actually does very much work in this sense. Uh, he is the intellectual, knowledgeable one, and that's not saying I'm not. I'm just the more colorful, colorful one. Uh, we just both have different writing styles. We have different approaches to things. But that makes for the best partnership because we're able to see both sides of the coin and I can get my perspective on a piece. He can give his perspective. And when we meet in the middle, that's when the piece is, you know, 100% shine. So it has been a pleasure. Do we butt heads sometimes? Of course. Like It's going to happen in any partnership. Like you're going to do any little bit of that stuff. But it has been so nice to kind of find all the all the ways that we can work together, all the ways we can learn from each other. The SEO is actually a great thing because our first piece that we ever published was uh, Lindsay Travis's piece on the Friday the 13th uh, lawsuit. And mm. it, it is number one or number two ranked on Google because of what Monogle does. Monogle knew he's like, this piece is not only going to do well for us, we're going to take over this on Google. It's going to drive our website. So the fact that he is able to look at things and find those keywords and, you know, and be your, your column for us, like literally the stuff you're, well, not your column, but the stuff you're doing for us, that's technically SEO work. Yep. That's that big nasty word of like, that's an SEO piece. But guess what? It's also incredibly genius writing and it's very original. And these are ideas that aren't being written about. So We've, we found a way, I think, and work with Monogle. He's shown me a hundred percent that you can do the SEO content and it can be creative and engaging and new. So I'm, I'm getting sick and tired of hearing how SEO is the death knell of journalism because it's not. Bad <laughs> SEO writing is the death knell of journalism. Correct. I will yeah. die on that hill as well. <laughs> <laughs> if you can pitch SEO well, you are an invaluable writer. I, I want people to understand this. Like you can pitch your personal pieces. I get that. You could do all that stuff. But if you know how to work SEO and do it right, I promise you, you will get accepted many places. I want people to hear that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so this was a question we asked Monagal as well. What is your favorite episode that you've recorded? Oh, so this is hard because three come to mind immediately. I want to say it was the one with Tyler McIntyre okay. because Monagal is not a horror comedy fan. <laughs> this is where we differ tremendously. We butt heads all the time. If it's a horror comedy, it's a Donato movie. The only time we've ever come together on one, which is so weird, was Deep Murder, Trace's episode. Mm. For some reason, he loved that, and I don't get why, because it doesn't fit the Monagal rules <laughs> for liking a movie. So in any case, that was, that was a bonkers one. But I go to Tyler because we did an episode with Amelia on Patchwork. And I, I dug Patrick, Patrick a lot. Amelia did as well. And Monagle was just like on there going like, listen, comedies aren't for me. Tyler, great job. But like, whatever, whatever, whatever. So like Tyler comes on to do an episode with us and he brings this great Brazilian uh, mixture of like Candyman and a Haunted House film. It's awesome. And of course, it's kind of we get in the conversations of like, all right, Tyler, I'm sorry I said those things about Pat. Like, it just comes out naturally, like Monagle just eating shit on that episode. So uh, 100% that was one That's of my other amazing. ones. Also, I will pl I will plug a Ted Gagan's episode on Zombie Ass Toil of the Dead because Monagle hated that movie so much. <laughs> and you can just hear it. You can hear it as he's talking about it. It's one of my favorite episodes because we're able to have a really in-depth conversation about exploitation, what it means, and also talk about a Japanese extreme horror movie about ass zombies. And Monagle's just hating every minute of it. <laughs> and I'm loving every minute of it. So I, I, how could I how could I let those two episodes not be my favorite? That's amazing. That's fucking incredible. What was the name of the movie again? Zombie Ass Toil of the Dead. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. <laughs> There's like tentacle monsters that come out of zombie butts. Uh, oh. oh. All right. Yeah. Wow. Um, and that's like, that's like a mild spoiler. Oh. Wow. Well, on that note... <laughs> Speaking, of, Speaking zombie of zombie butts and tentacles. Yeah. Donato, what movie did you bring with you today? <laughs> Something a little more family friend. Well, I don't even know if it's family friendly yeah, anymore. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> considering some of the uh, dated references, we'll say in there, uh, I brought <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And I, do you want me to get in why yet? What do you want me to do here? So let me, let me read the plot synopsis, which is like very short, and then we will talk about why but the plot synopsis short and sweet a group of scientists band together to save the world from mutated killer tomatoes that was from imdb and that is that, as, as we're discovering whenever we do these it's like the tip of the iceberg who these movies are but actually also like about. that is how i feel like you should describe it because there's no real other way to like encapsulate what this movie is i mean really fair. at all so okay this movie is ridiculous so i need to know why you chose this movie <laughs> donato please tell us your horror story about attack of the killer tomatoes <laughs> <laughs> Gladly. I will say that I chose this because I really wanted to accentuate 
how much of a weenie I was as a kid. Like, I really <laughs> wanted to drive home how terrified I was of horror movies because this is not a horror movie. This is, as you've just said, uh, it's a lot of things. It is a musical comedy about killer fruits or vegetables, whatever your opinion here is. And I still couldn't watch it the first time I did because I was a little kid. And all I got to was the quote-unquote Jaws scene, I'll call it, when the tomatoes are floating in the water and eating <laughs> yes. people. And at that point, I literally made whoever's house I was at. I was sleeping over a friend's house. Uh, like, the mom put it on or something like that. I was out. I literally was like, you got to turn the shit off. Like, obviously, at my young age, I wasn't saying that. But my general vibe was, we're not going to watch this because <laughs> I'm not going to let you. <laughs> do, do you remember how old you were when you, when, when you saw it? I hope I was I, I was very young. Okay. I do know I was very young at the time. Um, I mean, this came out in 78, so I can't really, like, tie it to anything. Right. But I know I was young enough at the time to not really have a knowledge about cinema, not a knowledge about anything at that point. So in my little mind, all I saw was tomatoes eating people. In a t- sorry, what I saw was tomatoes bobbing on the top of waves. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, like, People let's, swam by them. Let's, let's make this clear. The killer tomatoes are literally just <laughs> giant tomatoes. Like, it all depends on the scene. It could be an actual tomato, a giant paper mache tomato. Um, but there's no, like, the poster has this, like, really intense illustration of a tomato with teeth. No, these tomatoes are just, like, tomatoes. And they, they make sounds like this. <laughs> it's so amazing the moment that i first heard the sound because the opening scene is well after the the like the titles or this this the text sequence that explains <laughs> that you know everyone laughed at the birds and then birds attacked the town and now here comes the tomatoes and the scene of the woman in their kitchen. And you, all you hear is this little <laughs> coming out of the sink. I was like, I, I don't care if the rest of the movie stuck in the drain and it like <laughs> pops out. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't care if the rest of the movie is terrible. I, I am in love with this movie from this, this beginning moment. Well, and then if it goes into the, the, te- the title sides that are like, it's this, the mute, this, the song. And then that's like the, 1-800 call like he just devolves into a madness immediately and it's like oh this movie knows exactly what it is and what it's doing and that's why it's so funny it's not out to me that this scared you but as a kid you probably just had like no fucking idea what was going on you were like this absolutely what it's like watching airplane like those kind of comedies you watch as a kid where you're just like i don't understand why this is funny and but then you watch it as an adult and you're like this is this is this genius <laughs> and yes yeah, so, so again i was very young at the time i do want to stress this yeah. but again this was this is made uh this is chosen to make a point this is chosen to kind of give y'all a flavor of the things that were terrifying me at that age and how that evolved in me and how i got more scared of things from a certain Did time it? so but yeah i didn't get i didn't get past that that water scene that I, I i literally made the mother turn it off and i was like no absolutely not i'm not watching this this is horrifying so did it did it like affect you after you saw it or do you just watch it, turn it off? And you're like, absolutely not. Like, were you scared of tomatoes afterward? Uh, I, I love tomatoes. I will admit that. Well, maybe that's a bit of a vengeance thing that I, I love tomatoes so much <laughs> is that I kept eating them. And I was like, no, fuck you. This is how I get back at you. <laughs> so I, I do have a question because it's a note I took while I was watching yeah. this film. Um, is this the start of the uh, your obsession with red? brilliant question brilliant question so i will say i enjoyed the cartoon did you did you you see the cartoon attack of the killer tomatoes yes okay yes that was a big like saturday morning cartoon Mm -hmm. i I loved the cartoon which is actually the scariest version of the tomatoes themselves because they actually do have teeth and they actually do have like menacing growls okay so for for mary beth i want to explain this this cartoon because this is my only until we watch this movie, I watch this movie for the, this podcast, my only entry point for this franchise. And Mary Beth, it takes place five years after the Great Tomato War, where tomatoes are banned. An evil doctor named Putrid T. Gangrene was working on experiments on tomatoes. And he is battled by a young 10-year-old named Chad Finletter and his friends F.T., which is a fuzzy tomato that is pretending to be a dog. And a girl named Tara, who is secretly a human-tomato hybrid pretending to be a teenage girl. Welcome to 80s and 90s cartoons for kids. They were wild. We're going to give you a minute to let that sink in, and then you can speak. I'm looking for images of this. Wait. 
What? <laughs> it's a very Toxic Avenger cartoon vibe. Yeah. Uh, okay. If, if that helps. Wow. Incredible. So, okay. So, sh- wow. <laughs> oh, no. Then I found porn. I don't want to look at oh. the Attack of the... <laughs> okay. <laughs> All roads uh, lead Attack to the porn. Killer, what? Attack of the Killer Tomato. Like, oh, God. The internet. The internet. You can find anything. You can find porn. it's immediately like with the, the the tomato human hybrid. Why? I just did a Google image search of the animated series. Was that even on page two? Was that on page one? On page one. <laughs> <laughs> Do better, internet. Do better. <laughs> no more. Stop. <laughs> okay, you're the one looking at this I point. Know, you kept going. I, I so. did. I know. I know. I know. I did this to me. But why? It's the first page for an animated. Whatever. Anyway, continue. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Derailed. So, you, but you watched that as well. <laughs> I, d- I did. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was. I was a cartoon, and I, maybe that was part of it too. Like I was a cartoon fan, so I, I let the movie happen, mm. and it being real life just threw everything for me. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I don't. So that was one of the things I avoided afterwards. So I would say my after effects of being terrified of that scene and having it being turned off just done with it like done with we're never gonna let this live in my life we're never gonna let this come on again so it was active avoidance that was my reaction to things that scared me at that point it wasn't let's test it and see how i react it was nope you are dead to me i'm now like blacklisting you you are gone so how old were you when you revisited it literally maybe two or three years ago for a bloody disgusting article incredible and you're probably like i wasn't scared of it the whole time yeah I can only imagine watching this and being like, oh, this is the movie that has defined <laughs> my childhood fear. Not defined, this but is like, the thing know. that scared me so deeply that I ran away from the television. <laughs> the thing that goes... <laughs> I just like roll. I mean, okay. To, to be honest, of all the scenes in the movie, because I, whenever someone chooses the movie, I'm always sitting there as I'm watching it going, okay, what is the scene that did it? And... That scene, it's not scary. I, I mean, I don't want to say that it is scary, but in terms of like the rest of the scenes in the movie, it is the one moment of like actual horror in the movie, in my opinion. Silly, but there's actual horror there. The one, the one single one, <laughs> unless you are horrified of musical interludes, because some of those can be quite horrifying. Which, okay, <laughs> puberty love. <laughs> puberty love. Puberty, puberty love. What? A horrible but fantastic song. <laughs> Performed, by the way, by a young Matt Cameron, who would later go on to be the drummer for Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. We all start somewhere. You all start somewhere. <laughs> and he started as a teen singing Puberty Love, so... That has huge Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie vibes to me. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, but, like, yeah. that kind of comedy and that kind of really bad song is just Master Shake just doing his song in that movie. Mm-hmm. So it, it is so many weird tie-ins where you can watch Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And you already alluded to the fact that it is a satire uh, slapstick comedy. It's very in the vein of airplanes, uh, hot shots, all that. It's also, it's also the Shin Godzilla of food horror movies because it is so I about. I need you to tell me everything about what you just said. I want to hear everything about why you called this the Shin Godzilla of food horror. Because Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is completely about governmental failure. It's completely about the incompetence of officials and higher ups, how they ruin everything. I mean, the villain of the film ends up being someone trying to you know work for the government and. Then he turns out to be like working for Big Tomato. Like, just all this shit. It, like none of it makes sense. But very much every scene is about the incompetence of these people. Whether that be the tiny br- uh, boardroom they all have to like crawl into, like a, the recurring gag of them in a janitor's closet and that being their conference I love room. That scene. All these other dumb the climbing things. Climbing on top of each other to get in. That it's okay. That entire sequence where we're, they it, it's it's it, that is such a. There are moments of pure like comedic genius in this movie. There really are, and it's the whole scene where they're like we got a, a group of generals that no one knows anything of and so then we meet the generals and the one general is talking about he's like oh where'd you get that badge sir or that medal and he's like oh that was a three-legged sack race badge you know it's like <laughs> that that's the that car agrees with you <laughs> it does that's like i lost my train of thought is what just happened there 
<laughs> comedy, genuine comedy, though. Genuine this comedy. is a very silly movie, but that is genuinely funny. Like, there are flourishes here of a very intelligently written comedy. Exactly. Yeah. And when I say flourishes, they're flourishes, but... <laughs> well, exactly, because, like, watching this, you know, it's like, obviously they knew what they were doing with these jokes. Like, they're very purposefully structured jokes. It's not just like, oh, this is so bad, it's funny. It's like, no, these people, like, actually had an idea about what comedy was and, like, how to structure those things and what really will make people laugh. What comedy was back then was relatively, not even relatively, extremely offensive because, boy, oh, boy, this movie has aged like milk in some regards in terms of its um, use of words and racial imagery. Yeah, the moment – Not a – not great. No, the moment where the the Japanese scientist is being – like, first, he is being ADR'd by – someone that is obviously not his race that is like speaking and then he knocks over the battleship which is a callback to to pearl, pearl harbor. harbor and then they use a slur and then they also call the fruits fags yeah i was like that happened and i had to pause i was like wait yep was At first, really I didn't understand joke? the joke, and then I was like, "Oh, fruits." fruits. Okay, yeah, I was like, "That's really what we're doing." Uh, huh? It's a little awkward. Yeah, in spots. It's we're seventy eight, so yes. not a great time for well, that kind of stuff like, at all. And it's like you know, especially with the 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 joke where he knocks the USS Arizona into the into the aquarium. That someone constructed that very purposefully, like, and that's what's even mm. wilder. It's like, oh, this is like a multi part joke involving props and like everything. So it's like. They knew exactly what they were doing. 1978. Oh, this is meticulously plotted for as silly as it is. Meticulously plotted. And it goes, again, it goes down to the Hitler costume. It goes down to the uh, female, the woman journalist and her being told repeatedly to basically show more effort uh, being a running gag. Like, that's a funny thing. Like, that's how she gets ahead. It's very, very outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I did, I am curious about this because uh, okay I found an article that was on Bon Appetit which surprised the hell out of me <laughs> but there is like an article that is basically a conversation with the people involved with this movie uh, kind of like an oral history of the film they were talking about this was post Vietnam first of all and there was an emergence of satire a very light level layered with quote what did you what if you did a Japanese horror film that was a comedy musical that was really at its core sort of commenting upon the difficulty of the modern bureaucracy has of dealing with big problems and disasters, which is summarized with you saying that this is the Shin Godzilla kind of movie. Um, but I was really taken aback when I saw that their idea was a Japanese horror film until Mary Beth, before we were recording, mentioned that this kind of reminded her, what, of kaiju films? Yeah, so this movie... So you mentioned Shinji Godzilla, and I'm glad you did, because I also got a lot of vibes from, like, class... Like, the post-Godzilla kaiju movies that... Like, so 1954 was when Godzilla was released, and that movie, I think, is a horror movie. It's pretty scary. It's actually really terrifying, like, the original Godzilla, but then the kaiju movies that kind of came after it and the movement that came after that got increasingly more goofy. But staple of those movies is always, like, government incompetency and kind of just, like, mocking the government's inability to handle any kind of disaster, no matter, like, and what that and what that looks like. And a lot of this comedy, I think, is based off of, like, actual serious events you see happen in those kaiju movies, like espionage and spy... Like, there's... In, um, I think, in one of the Mothra movies, like, there's espionage that they're, like, trying to, like, steal these little women that are Mothra's attendants back from spies and all of this stuff so it really is playing off of the structure of like the kind of classic kaiju movie and what they're saying not just about like oh it's a cool monster movie but about an ability to take care of disasters and like the bureaucratic ridiculous the ridiculousness of bureaucracy in japan which gets i think it's really does get lost i think and people thinking that kaiju movies are ridiculous and they are i will say they are ridiculous and like Shin Godzilla, I think did such a good job in being scary and putting that to the forefront rather than just silly. But um, yeah, it's got a lot of those. It's definitely, and I mean, you said that. I was like, that's exactly what they were doing with this movie was making a kaiju movie, but American. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, the kaiju ties are there even deeper because you have the sequence where the miniatures are used instead of actual towns yep. being destroyed. And mm-hmm. you can look at that as a budgetary thing, of course, where they don't have, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes does not have the budget to pull off a Dwayne the Rock Johnson level budget kind of, kind of movie. So they're going to have to use miniatures to destroy a city. But it's very obvious and they want you to know they're doing it and i think that ties right into the kaiju nature of it and uh, you know for however bad that overdub of the japanese scientist is that is also a callback to the bad overdub mm-hmm. of those kind of movies so it is it's ingrained throughout the dna of attack of the killer tomatoes it you just have trouble thinking about it because the tomatoes are not the size of kaijus the tomatoes are just smaller monsters and we, we never have that great pan out moment that even crank to high voltage does <laughs> Not seen Crank 2. Crank 2? Wait, there's a kaiju moment in there. There's a kaiju moment in Crank 2. No what shit. is really? I've never seen Crank 2. I've never I was seen Crank 2. I was like, that's a ridiculous reference. Straight up. <laughs> Straight up, Jason Statham turns into a kaiju and fights the other guy as a kaiju on, on, in a miniature town. All right. Well, that's going to um, top of I'm my adding this to my list right now. And there we go. <laughs> Y'all got to tell me you saw the first Crank and you didn't get the second one. <laughs> I didn't even I'm see the first. I'm not even sure crank. if I saw the first one. Now that I think about it, I might. Have. I think I'm I kind of sure. got. I got the gist. <laughs> but uh, honestly, <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> but sometimes you really just want to watch a ridiculous action movie where Jason Statham is just like fucking shit up for an hour and a half. But yeah, what? but oh, what were you gonna say? <laughs> I, no, I, I just going back to this the bureaucracy. The the my favorite moments in this movie are the kind of like constant shots of going back to. The like government that is failing everybody, where where like the president is holding it. Well, his press secretary is holding a, a press conference about how the the government is absolutely not spending money on fluffy flower flower print toilet paper. Like this is what we're having a, a you know a press conference for when there are mutant tomatoes marauding across the country. So that scene, or like when he decides he wants to nuke New York, even though the tomatoes are nowhere near New York at this point. And he's like, you worry about your problems. I got mine is the president's response. I'm like, this is this is hilarious. Or the Senate, the constant shots of the Senate where they're just like slowly falling asleep through the entire movie and not doing anything. And then at the very end, they're just like smacking their gavel, just like inefficiently. I just these moments, I think, are like they are really hitting something that is really kind of smart and funny here. Well, and I think this also calls back to kaiju movies because you don't have a lot of the tomatoes. You know what I mean? Like in a lot of these kaiju movies, you don't have a lot of the monster. It's a lot about the human interaction, the human characters. And in this, again, you don't get a lot, you don't really get a lot of tomatoes. It's a lot of human in human intrigue and like relate and like kind of that whole bureaucracy thing, which again is very clever and um, calls back to that. But also makes I I thought it made the moments of the tomatoes even funnier because it was just, it's not even like for budgetary reasons because they don't have a lot of costumes or like big, it's not a big set pieces. It's just tomatoes rolling down the street. And gibbering. <laughs> and gibbering. And not even rolling, they're being thrown off camera. Like it is clearly oh, they're being so... chucked by some PA whose job was just to throw fake tomatoes at the actors. Oh my God, it's incredible. But like, my okay, so my favorite line of this entire movie is when there's just a guy you hear and you hear him go, "Oh, look at you, funky little tomato!" Just like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's the dirt bike guy. He's like wearing leather. Dirt bike guy, and it's like little tomato. It's like, but like they're small looking tomatoes. They like, look like little tomatoes, and then he's like, "Oh, you funky little tomato!" And then you hear him get eaten, and it's just. it's just like and like i think they also play with scale in a funny way where i feel like you have different sized tomatoes but like when the Mm -hmm. small tomatoes eat people it's fucking hysterical they obviously get bigger and bigger but it's just so something just about the size of a tomato and the thought of people running away from them scared and being eaten by them is just my favorite thing just like a little tomato rolling by and it eats it's just incredible it's incredible. Well, that's the the one scene with the military and the scientist, and they capture one of the tomatoes and they have it restrained. <laughs> and Mason Dixon comes over and they're explaining to Mason Dixon wh- why he should be horrified. And Mason Dixon's like, "Well, it's just like a regular sized tomato. What's what's the big deal here?" And they're like, "It's a cherry it's a tomato." Cherry tomato. <laughs> like, that, the delivery of that line is just perfect. And also, my favorite moment, and this gets into the really slapstick nature of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, is there's the boy and his dog. And the boy is fishing by the river, yes. and the dog runs away, and the boy, the boy is like, oh, what are you going to do? you going to check that out? And then you hear the dog's voice from off camera, being like, I don't know, Billy, I'm going to go check that out. Like, the dog just starts <laughs> talking, and you're like, what the fuck is happening? I just, 
oh my god like everyone on the team when they line them up and they're like one of the guys like they're in the scuba suit and he goes swimming in the fountain it's just so stupid and the people sitting there are so scared like they jump and they're like what i love that their team their crack team is a disguise expert a swim expert an underwater diver expert and then parachute expert just the military guy just generic military paratrooper <laughs> but i just love that, that for the swim and the underwater diving expert they just drop him off in the desert and they just like i'm like this is as far away as you can go from requiring skills with swimming or underwater diving i just i, I love it it's nonsense it, it is pure nonsense and again that goes to the character who is the military guy who is dressed as a paratrooper and the gag for him is that He's always dragging a parachute everywhere, and he's always oh just God. in his military garb. So I, I think that's where the humor gets a little touch and go. It is funny at first. It's funny as he's running through the street and trying to camp on a sidewalk and doesn't know what a hotel is. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's just going to have that parachute everywhere. Oh, okay, so this is just going to be a thing now. I will say that I did love his chase when he was chasing after Chase's the assassin. and. They're just like crawling over like the the pallets of things instead of like going around it. And he's like, you know, trying to pull up his parachute and and fold it up. And I just I loved it. I I, was like one of my favorite moments of like slapstick comedy in this film. Although, uh, interestingly enough, when that scene at the very end, when he is being dragged down the street, he almost like died while filming this in a practice because like they took a corner and he went flying underneath the truck and hit his head. And they thought, they thought that he had died at that point. And he was so upset that they didn't catch it on film. Did you read the fun fact about the helicopter crash? I sure did. did that $60,000 helicopter that just, that the helicopter in that scene where it's like kind of like flipping around in the background. And I'm like, what, wait, what did I miss part of the movie? Like what is happening? No, that was, that was a, uh, accident i was i almost said happy accident like no that's it, literally that was their rental chopper and it was the i think it was something like the tail blade i, I have it right here um the tail rotor blades accidentally hit the ground causing the helicopter to spin out of control debris in the top rotator blades narrowly missed the police officers in the scene and the crew off camera the pilot received minor injuries and the actors literally got pulled from the wreck and immediately started improving so they could use the footage and that's actually them crawling away from the crashed helicopter and as Terry said, 60K right there, which was more than the entire, like, anything else in the movie cost. That was the most expensive thing that ever happened on Attack of the Killers videos. In this Bon Appetit article, John DeBello, the, the co-writer and director, said that he ran in and pulled the guys out of the helicopter and, quote, would have been really embarrassed if I had to tell their agents they were dead, <laughs> was Jeez. what he said about the film. Right. What a big oopsie. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you lost two clients. <laughs> oopsie. Sorry. What yeah. an incredible movie. And it also, you, you talked about – you brought up Airplane. And what's what's interesting is that – so Airplane came out a few months after their movie. And in this – again, this Bon Appetit article, which is like a wealth of it. We'll include it in the show notes because it is – it is if you like this movie, it is quite a read. But he talks about how they saw that movie and he's like, well, that's our movie with a budget. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it is, though. Like, it, it is, though. Because like, their it sense is. of humor is so similar. Like, especially this, the, the moment that really got me with the Airplane similarity was when – the the woman reporter and the parachute guy were sitting next to each other on the phone and they were talking about each other yes. and it was like all the really fast like intercutting and like funny like like gags and the jokes that were going on with like the the editing and i was like yep this is a very much feels like in the vein of airplane but i guess this came first which is amazing that this came <laughs> This game There's also the, uh, you know, airplane starting with the voiceover and you get like the intercom voice uh, doing the gag about like what's parked out front. And that's the same gag that Attack of the Killer Tomatoes does where it's like whoever has the, the tank in the parking lot, your lights are on. Like one of those like but like that is almost the same gag, like note for note. Yep. So the fact that they did call it, you know, airplane is Attack of the Killer Tomatoes on a budget. It's a lot more. Uh, I give that sentence more credit than I think a lot of other people would. Yeah, for sure. No, for sure. There also are a couple, like, really great lines in this movie. Like, ones that I had to, like, write down and go, how did you even think about this? Like, when when the president is talking about how this conflict is like trying to stack Bibles on whipped cream. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what a random... I mean, it makes sense. Bible's heavy, whipped cream light. I Like, I get it. But it's like, how did... What... What triggered in your mind to think that that is like the comparison you want to use in this movie? It's just it's so random and and funny at the same time. That's as he's signing 
documents that just say president's signature here and he grabs a new pen and signs it and throws it away because presidents just waste shit i like pass it the passing the pens oh my god the pens but like 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 you were saying that every part about this movie is like so purposefully funny though because like even the background intercom on like the on the military base or even like the news the news reporting or like and the the tomatoes are running around raping women and i was like to what? <laughs> I I, mean, I wrote that line down specifically thought, because the, like the whole line is they're burning, pillaging, and raping. Because yes! you like you're like, are they gonna say it? And then they do, and it's like, and, and the implication that tomatoes do that, right? And I was like, that is such a like a, it's such a quiet like almost throwaway line, but it's so f- it's it's fu- I'm, it's funny. Like I have to, it's, it's kind of hysterical. Just it's, it's the tim- it's toma- it's that with tomatoes. And it's just makes your mind work in so many horrific ways that you never thought that you would think about a tomato. I spit on your grave, but with tomatoes. (laughs) I spit tomato seeds on your grave. It's a dark moment, so I had to just no. But I'm glad that that you also wrote that down. So I was like, look, I have to bring this up because it's so dark and fucked up, but also like dumb funny. Because <laughs> it's over the miniatures. It's over the yes. miniature tomatoes destroying miniature buildings that are exploding and on fire. Like, like and that's this movie. The- I feel like is so many extreme jokes, and a lot of them don't land, especially now, like in regards to race. But there are some that I'm like, okay, like that is kind of like, and like one of those extreme jokes that you're like, I have to laugh. Like it's just so stupid. It's so ridiculous and over the top that you're like. Yep. Another one of my favorite moments that, along that same line is, and it's, it's actually kind of a smart thing about like news reporting, but the moment when the news reporter is talking to the woman and he's like, Mrs. Williams, <laughs> I understand your husband is missing. Do you think he's dead? And she starts like bawling. He's like, will you miss him? Will you marry again? What if he's laying in a ditch somewhere with both of his legs broken calling your name? And it's just like the escalation of traumatizing this woman over her missing husband is just like, mm, God, it's, it's such... so perfect. <laughs> Oh, guys. Oh, my God. Thanks for letting me watch this movie. It's so dumb, but it's so fu- like, it's just so much. I think it's so much more clever than like you think about like when you hear about this movie, you're like, oh, that movie is going to be like so stupid. And like it is. But it, I don't think people talk about how like clever the jokes are for the most part. And it's in- it's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> I also I, the other thing that I I love w- going along with this incredibleness though is that when they go to the uh, I guess ad person that's like trying to wrap up like the kind of tell the story about it and he's comparing tomato plants versus nuclear plants and about how tomato plants emit no radioactive waste and they they cost less to build they taste better they cannot explode like and he bursts into song yeah. and he starts singing if you're sad and blue tomatoes end it all for you like I, I just. It's so good. And it, it, it's the funny part because it's the repulsiveness of how marketers and media can spin anything and like turn a mm-hmm. – the whole idea is that the press secretary is going to this uh, mind hive or something. It, it's mind something. Mind, mind maker. maker. So the mind maker agency is going to spin away this giant tomato threat and we're going to tell the public that everything's fine. So you have this sleaze bag breaking out in a song singing about how it doesn't matter what product they're selling. It's just about how it's sold and that's all that matters to anyone. It's about that rapper. Right, it's just about the rapper. And you're sitting there going, this is ridiculous. This is funny. But at the same time, there is so much behind that single song and sentence and like that chorus that you don't really appreciate it until it's over because in the moment you're just caught up with the ridiculousness. After the moment you're like, oh, that's really dark. That's actually really terrible. And the government is going to use them. And that's what they do because they just media away their problems and the, the lie that like i i wrote down and i bolded be- with with that is when he's talking about how we need to convince that housewife that that tomato that ate their pet is not dangerous and that is what that is what we have to do and we have to, to sell and convince people that disaster is actually a blessing in disguise and it's like ooh, you are like really hitting on some themes here in amongst your very racist and um silly humor at in times and, and it it boils down to you brought the scene already but the press secretary scene where he's answering questions about the toilet paper 
But the funny part is those are the questions being asked of him by the journalist. So everyone's missing the point. Mm-hmm. And then just as the meeting's about to end, an 11-year-old in the back stands up <laughs> from, like, kid. a middle school and he calls on him. And he's the only one that's like, what are you going to do about the, the impending uh, killer tomato plague? And that's when, like, his face goes like, oh, no, they caught me. <laughs> like, no one mentions it until the little kid who is just like, hi, euthanasia. And everyone nation. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> this is just a child. But he's like, I'm paying attention. What the fuck, guys? <laughs> Loved it. Wow. I'm. I'm. Is it genuine it. love though? Like legitimately, is it genuine love or was it just ridiculousness love? I. You know, I. I I've watched this movie twice because we watched it. I watched it a few weeks ago when we were going to originally record, and then I watched it again because it'd been, you know, a couple of weeks. And I genuinely love this movie as much as like there are issues with it, and there are issues with this movie. I don't know. There's something about it that just that kind of go for broke mentality of like we're just going to take a hundred thousand dollars and just try to shoot this this movie as much as we possibly can and i just i love that sort of independent spirit of just like we have this idea and we're going to just run with it and just keep going past the the, Uh, i believe you mean roll with it oh there we go try to catch up terry there we go (laughs) you know oh my god when the guy in the fucking tomato outfit asked them to pass the catch up when he's like trying, uh, he, that's how he gets out. He he's outed. just a man in a he's tomato just, costume. This man is trying to just in a tomato costume, disguising himself amongst the tomatoes, and he outs himself by asking someone to pass the ketchup when they're eating a person. God, this movie's incredible. This is <laughs> the kind of highbrow material you can expect from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Pass the ketchup. <laughs> have no! you have you seen? Have you seen any of the others in the franchise? I have not, I have not ventured into the other uh, depths of the franchise. <laughs> I have heard Return of the Killer Tomato is actually really good. Huh. I have heard that. I bought the movie based on, I think I was talking with uh, Michael Verratti, and <laughs> I believe he said that that movie is actually quite entertaining. And so I remember buying it. I haven't watched it, and I'm planning on watching it now. I have a reason. This. I do. Um, so uh, do we want to wrap up and give this a rating out of five? That sounds fantastic. Terry, how many funky little tomatoes out of five do you give Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? Okay, so watching this movie in 2021, I was thinking about how poorly a lot of parodies age. And I was thinking in particular, like, I wonder, I feel like me watching this movie now would be like someone in, and I did the math, 2043 watching scary movie and being confused about some of the references because <laughs> there are some references in here where it's like no one that is not born before a certain age is going to get any of it and i i don't think it's aged particularly well in some cases but at the same time there is a silliness here that belies some of the intelligence that i think is going on behind behind the screen and i also started thinking about how i'm pretty sure mars attacks ripped off this movie with the way that they repel the aliens at the end with the the horrible song because that is basically how they they destroy the aliens in that movie is with a terrible song that ends up getting played across the, the world to repel them so i think that there are a lot of things in here that i that probably have lingered in pop culture i don't know it was a lot of fun i think gosh i think if i had to think critically about it i'd probably give it three funky little tomatoes out of five but i did really i did really enjoy it in the moment more than a three little tomato reference but what about i agree you, so like i really i want to be like five five stars five little funky tomatoes like the best so fun but then it's like ooh, but you can and it's that conversation of you can still love things that have offensive material but you still gotta acknowledge them and you still gotta talk about it and you just gotta know it's there and you can still think it's fun and also realize that parts of it are not good like why is there a black guy in hitler costume um and it never is brought up again so Jesus Christ! Like comedy is truly just, this. Watching this movie was truly just a really a big, really big mind fuck about how far comedy is or how comedy has evolved in the past what fifty years. Anyway, that aside, um, I had a very good time with this really stupid movie about tomatoes and bureaucracy, and it reminded me of airplane in a very lovely way. So I will definitely be giving this a three, a funky little tomatoes out of five. Donato, 
Give the final word. Absolutely. I, Terry, that was a great point bringing up, you know, Scary Movie and how that would age yeah. 30-ish years from now if we were watching it then. Because the comparison I'm going to make is Scary Movie and that franchise, especially the sequels, they're going to play so poorly because their type of satire mm-hmm. is just based on pop culture. They don't know how to make fun mm-hmm. of anything baser than, this is a funny thing you saw in the news, we're going to cram it into a movie and hope that it's still relevant. Th- that, to me, is like a base kind of satire where... Scary Movie 1 and 2 do it a lot better, uh, and 2, on a rewatch, uh, does some things not great either, so that falls right in the category of, holy crap, what is going on? But those latter sequels, they're they're useless, because all they are is, like, Dr. Phil jokes and Shaq cameos, and mm-hmm. sure, that's funny to us in the moment, and maybe Shaq will sustain, but there's nothing there of value, where Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is a satire, it is definitely slapstick, and it is more along the lines of Airplane, where they are making fun of something that we can recognize, whether that's kaiju movies, yeah. whether that's the government, whether that's something tangible that's not just related on a on a, like what would now be a uh, one hit headline used in like base journalism. Mm-hmm. So Attack of Killer Tomatoes does do that right; it does it well. And I am sticking with the three out of five though, for all the reasons you both said. It, it exists. I watch it. I kind of chuckle. I go, "How the hell did this get made?" We find out how it got made and that it almost killed people. And we still just sit here going, holy <laughs> fuck, this exists. And for that, I am thankful. This exists and like, what, three other films in the franchise? I think there's like a total of four so. films. But yeah, wow. Uh, well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us to talk about Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, I'm sorry. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you? And what do you have that you'd like to share or plug? I can say that the listeners can find me at Donatobum on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. You will get all of my writing posted in all of those places. So I will try not to give an avalanche of all my writing because I do a lot of it, as they said, and it's everywhere. It's hard to keep track of. So you can also find me on Authory if you know what that is. Uh, It's a nice little page that puts everything together and it keeps in one place. So no matter where I write, it shows up there at Matinato. Things that are coming up for me, just more of the same. All my horror reviews on what to watch. Fantasia is happening right now. I don't know when this is going to go up. But Fantasia goes for like three weeks. So I'll finally start watching some of those movies. Fantastic is on is on the horizon. We got a lot coming up. So, uh, yeah, look me, find me. See my dumb tweets about Demon Wind. We'll have a good time. And, and, and Reds. Lots of Reds. And uh, where can they find Certified Forgotten? Certified Forgotten. You can find us at Certified Forgot. Or you can find our Patreon. Search Certified Forgotten. Because every dollar that goes to our Patreon goes back into the website and our writers. That is our promise. And that is what we will continue to do. So however much we can get from the Patreon, that is how many articles we can put out. And that is how much we can uh, pay our writers. So you help us. We help them. It's all a big uh, circle of trust there. Yeah. Um, so listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you what was your experience with attack of the killer tomatoes you can send us an email at scarred for life podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on twitter i am at mb mcandrews and i'm at gaily dreadful and of course don't forget to follow the podcast on twitter at scarred podcast and please please don't forget to review rate and subscribe Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you small-town dicks, this is The Briefing Room. 
Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in the briefing room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.